Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Duff Gibson. He was a champion rower, speed skater, and bobsledder before switching to skeleton in his mid-30s. Duff showed that he'd finally found his ideal sport, winning World Cup events and World Championship medals. After finishing 10th in his first Olympics, Duff came back strong to win a dramatic gold in 2006. At age 39, he was, at the time, the oldest competitor to win gold in an individual discipline at the Winter Olympics. Duff is now a firefighter and coaches young athletes through Dark Horse Athletic, which prepares kids to thrive mentally, physically, and emotionally. He recently released his first book, The Tower of Sport, which emphasizes the importance of the mental game to high performance. Duff, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Phil and I are super excited to speak with you today, and congratulations on your new book, The Tower of Sport. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we're going to jump around to a bunch of fun topics and circle back to your book. Okay. Well, the let's see, the, the impetus for the book was being a kid and watching the Olympics and really being obsessed with the Olympics in particular. You know, we were all, uh, every Canadian boy is dreams of being in the, the NHL as, as well, like our, our childhood heroes. But for me, it was always the Olympics. And uh, to this day, I have remained obsessed with it. And it became my career and my uh, vocation as a coach after I was an athlete myself. And I just... I don't, I'm a, I'm professionally, I'm a firefighter. So I don't have, I ended my coaching career after the Sochi Olympics, which was 2014. And I thought I have obsessed and thought and read and conversed about this one topic. And I've always been interested in the mental aspects of it for so many years and been, you know, the subtitle is from a hotbed of high performance. And Calgary really is truly one of the world's, at least winter, but we have our share of summer athletes also, but one of the hotbeds of Olympic sport. And so I've had these wonderful conversations from some very iconic Olympians, and I wanted to get that all down in one spot to pass along more than anything else, because it's, it took me some of the lessons, some of the things, some of the chapters in the book, I really didn't come to terms with. Uh, or arranged, let's say, in my mind until well after I had uh, finished competing myself. So uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, and uh, that's that was the impetus for the book. Love it. 
Yeah, what's great about it is uh, you were in the trenches. You know, you know what it's like. You've been to you know two Olympics. You went from tenth to first, uh, which we want to get into a little bit. But uh, and then you were in that hotbed for quite some time, and so you got to see things as you know as a, a peak performer, but then also kind of reflect back on it and you know and take some of those gems and lessons learned and share them with the world. So. Uh, what what a gift you're giving to uh, athletes, but also uh, performers uh, across all achievement domains. Uh, you know, Phil and I like to talk about high performance is high performance. So what's neat about your book is it could truly help anyone. Well, I hope that's the case. It, it's ever since, you know, I, I joined the fire department the same year I made the national skeleton team. And so that was always, they're always looking for you know, to promote the team. They're always looking for an angle or a perspective. And, and I was always the Calgary firefighter who also does skeleton. And so I've been asked a hundred times, what are the similarities or what do you take from one to, to bring to the other? And I started them both at exactly the same moment in my life in the year 2000. But there's very definitely uh, a similarity in the sense that almost all of the practice that you do, and I realize this isn't true for every sport, but for skeleton in particular, and it will be the same for all the sliding sports, is you get two training runs a day to prepare for a World Cup. So a run takes about a minute uh, in length, and so you have two minutes of actually performing your sport per day in preparation for the big races. What, how do you, is that enough practice? No. How do you make up the difference? It's mental rehearsal. It's visualization. It's thinking and digesting and understanding. It's all of the mental game. And I would say that firefighting is, is very much the same way. We, and I, I listened to a podcast re recently where an emergency room doctor said essentially the same thing, which is this. You don't get to, you have no idea what you're going to face today. And fires to a firefighter is a relatively uncommon thing. The average firefighter in Calgary is less, sees less than two actual fires per year. And there are busier locations and quieter locations. But what we do on a regular basis, and I'm in a particularly quiet area of Calgary, what we do on a regular basis is we drive around and we say, okay, let's, let's take a left here. Okay, stop right here. Third house down there on the right, we can see smoke coming from the back. That's all we know about it. Let's say we're coming around the corner what are you doing? What am I doing? And we mentally go through it. And, and yes, the, there's certainly the benefit from doing the physical practice as well. But you can't, what I have learned from being a firefighter for 22 years is that no two incidents are alike and you have to think on your feet. And so the best preparation you can have is imagining what, it, what might happen, what you might do. And when you do go to a call, debrief it and go over different strategies that you could have employed. And, you know, you, you, it reminds me of the, you know, perfect practice makes perfect. Well, even as a skeleton athlete, I wanted to take a specific line. But in Torino, for example, it was very common, very easy to go late into corner 11. So I visualized what I would do if that happened. And that's the same for firefighting. And that's probably transferable to a lot of external to sport. So that was a very long No, it, that's answer. fascinating. 
yeah, talk to us a little bit about that the the challenge that you mentioned, which is you know if you're a Michaela Schifrin or a Sean White, obviously you have mega endorsements. Let alone what some of the summer Olympians, say Team USA basketball, might might have. So they are they are fully compensated for their efforts in their sport, even though obviously not for the Olympic portion. And they can just focus on their craft 100% of the time without needing to think, oh, crap, how am I going to pay the mortgage? But in the Summer Olympics, whether it's something like rowing or in the Winter Olympics, a discipline like yours, as you alluded to, that's not really an option. So you mentioned you just kind of go in as a, as a rookie firefighter at the same time as you're making this transition into skeleton and you're having to kind of put literally pull double duty can you talk to us a little bit about the mindset challenge there and and just the maybe the the need for time management and uh and energy management one would imagine between the two yeah it's you know you talk about hard work and i always say there's not a chapter in the book about hard work there's a chapter about passion because a passion, it means I'm daydreaming about it. I'm thinking about it for hours and hours. I mean, it was a, it was a period of uh, six years of my life where I didn't have kids yet. I, I was homesick at different times. There were, you know, I don't want to leave you with the impression that, you know, my brain was focused on one thing only. We had fun and we tried to, you know, have a laugh here and there and forget about our sport here and there. But it's really about you know, and that's, it's probably more so this applies to skeleton than anything else uh, because of the visualization component and not be, you know, having to find a way of filling in the gap because you can only do your sport for two minutes today. But it, it really is a mindset. It really derives from being in love with the sport. And I don't think it was Michaela Schifron, but someone who, the, a skier at this Olympics from Sweden, I think, and she was interviewed by our Canadian, who's a former skier who's working for the CBC, and just the report was how much this Swedish woman loved skiing and was just thrilled to be there, and the fact that she won a medal was just gravy on top, and if she never made a, na- a national team, she'd still, that's exactly what she would choose to do with her time. And that's such a relevant factor. And that ties directly to how we raise young people in sport and how we, you know, it's, it's referred to as the professionalization of youth sport. And I think it shoots itself in the foot overwhelmingly because it kills a love of the game. And so many of, I've seen a, uh, a study relating to NHL players, so many of them, didn't do a lot of organized hockey until they were like 14 or 15. But they lived across the street from a, a lake or a pond or a, an outdoor arena and they played for fun. And they played for hours every day. And that was, that was the case for me. Now, I didn't live, live across the street from a pond, but it was uh, on our street. We'd play street hockey for hours and hours. There was no trophy. There was no financial compensation. But there were no grown-ups either telling us what to do. And in our minds, every goal was overtime in the Stanley Cup Finals. But it was a beautiful foundation because it was never work. It never was work for me. There were, there were days that were harder than others. And sometimes you don't feel like going for, for sure, for sure. 
but I always had a sense, you know, in terms of skeleton, how, how much, how lucky I was to represent my country and to have, you know, have, have carding money. We have a different system than you do in the United States, where uh, at no expense to myself, I, you know, you delay having a nice car or a mortgage or that sort of thing. But at no, ex no cost, I was traveling around the world for the purpose of getting better and taking my shot at the Olympic Games. So a love of it and passion. That's, those are two themes of my career, I would say. Yeah, I think that's great about your book in terms of, you know, it's always going to be timeless, but uh, we need that reminder because it's, it's almost, you know, uh, we're too close to, uh, you know, our performance sometimes and forget why we do what we do and and that love of the game that you're talking about throughout your book and um uh, and and what's neat too I, I love how you talk about uh leave them wanting more you know like uh you know the, like kind of make it seasonal and and variety is so important and we forget those things those 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 fundamentals and and those brilliant basics and you actually live that to an unbelievable level uh tell us about your background because in sports because you were a speed skater and then you did bobsled. Yep. And before, and then you win a gold medal in skeleton. I mean, that's it. What a what a cool, well-rounded athletic history. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it was like I say, it, it, you you can go back further than that. And I dark horse is our family business, which is a kids multi-sport program. And sometimes when we start a new course, I say. My name is Duff Gibson. I won a gold medal in skeleton. Who knows what skeleton is? Okay. But I'm also a multi-sport athlete and I'll give five people a chance to guess a sport I've never tried before. And there are, you know, some of the coaches, the other coaches will prompt people as to what the, the correct answers are, like uh, uh, figure skating. Someone said modern pentathlon. I'm like, okay, you fully got me on that one. But it was before speed skating uh, at university, I was a rower and I was trying to follow in my uncle's footsteps. He went to the 84 Olympics in rowing. And before that in high school, it was wrestling. And that sort of came out of my father's influence who was a Canadian, two-time Canadian champion in judo. So I did judo when I was young and that judo is probably the martial art that is closest to wrestling. And, and everything else here and there for fun because it was always about the fun. And so, yeah, I, when I got to skeleton, I was a completely different athlete than I was had I just jumped into it after high school, let's say. And something that I think people don't necessarily appreciate as well as they should is the fact that the training program that's best for me, could be completely different than the one that's best for you. We are all, and that applies to the mental aspects as well. I know, you know, there's a bobsledder in town here who won an Olympic gold medal and uh, is, is, you know, hates the Germans and doesn't want you to talk to, the, you know, he coached and said, don't talk to those guys, you know, they're the enemy. And I would say that overwhelmingly that's a, that's the unusual case and overwhelmingly that wouldn't work for the average person but it's what motivated him so who am i to say what's right or wrong for someone else but you know in again in hindsight i look back in that upbringing of 
Get out of the house. Okay, so we play street hockey for two hours every day and never kept score. That was a tremendous, you know, in terms of fitness and hand-eye, in addition to everything else you're doing, it's also, it's very clear, we didn't think of it in those terms, but it's very clear in hindsight that why you're doing that. It wasn't for a prize. It was for the joy of competition. Yeah, I love that. Talk to us a little bit about the the mindset of of a rower, particularly at the college level, because obviously, as I alluded to earlier, you know, we've had Sarah Hendershot on, um, we've had Michael Derrita on, um, we're getting ready to have Alex Wolf on as well. So both rowers and now rowing coaches um, and those that have coached, you know, at the world championship and Olympic level. And so we've had a bit of insight, but from your perspective, what were some ways that you developed your mental game on those long hours on the erg and on the water? Well, to some extent, it, it suited me. I, I was just being me. And you get to a certain fit, fitness level, <laughs> uh, a level I haven't been at for perhaps a decade or two to this point, where you train so hard that you almost, you know, if, if I exert myself to that level now, I feel horrible. Whereas you just shake it off when you're in shape, right? The better shape you're in, the more you can push yourself and push yourself. But when you talk about the mindset of a, of a rower, it, I was one of the guys that I really was a power athlete. I should have been, if rowing was 500 meters, that, that would have been better for me than 2,000, which is the Olympic distance. Uh, but it was, it's one of those things where you have people who are, you know, 70% of their 70, 80% of their energy comes anaerobically and they're good at storing lactic acid. Whereas you have other athletes who are just human lungs where so much more of their, uh, I got those percentage backwards, uh, uh, but a big, suffice it to say, a big chunk of your energy comes anaerobically relative to the aerobic ones. You have these mixed sort of thing. And for me, hanging on for 2000 meters was, was hanging on, whereas other people probably wished it was a little longer than that. So there's all different mindsets and it's not as painful for some and more, you know, it's all, it's all different. But when you say the mindset of a rower, we in Canada, we had a coach who was, oh, and I'm blanking on his, what his name was, the, the most famous rowing coach in the world. And he's moved on and he could have moved on to the United States. I don't, I don't know. But he was, he's a British man and he coached there for many years and then moved to Canada and his style was I remember one of his quotes was when you think you are as tired as you could possibly be you're only one third of the way till death so that's (laughs) that's that's the mentality and he was a very kind man but he beat the living crap out of the athletes and they would literally race on the erg once or twice a day, they would try and outdo each other for a couple years leading up to an Olympics. And sometimes that works. But that's, to me, that's, it works for a short period of time and you're really chewing up and spinning out your athletes. So I don't know if you know the name Kath Bishop, but she wrote a book called The Long Win. And her, as soon as this coach left Great Britain for Canada, and admittedly, Canada won a couple of gold medals under this coach, that's when she thrived because it was a separation. She was able to go to a practice and think what's best for me right now, as opposed to we're going to 
beat the living crap out of each other and we're going to try and win today's practice and tomorrow we're going to do the same thing. And eventually she had her greatest performance four years after he, he left. And that's, so it's interesting that you'll have, you've had a couple, you're having uh, another rower on the, on the program because you might get very different answers. And I know someone that I reference in the book, a guy named Ben Rutledge, and they won the gold in Beijing uh, in 2008. And he talks about being obsessed and how his girlfriend would call his name and, and he would be in La La Land just thinking about rowing and how it was just doggy dog and they were just killing themselves to be a tiny bit better. And it worked. And it worked. But it, there are certainly athletes that don't respond to that. And that was, yep. that was Kath Bishop's story. And I found that fascinating myself. Yeah, I love the individual differences and, and what what individual performers need at different times as well. And I think it's uh, Mike Spracklin uh, was the coach. That's uh, right. And uh, yeah, we're going to have Adam Creek on too. We're friends with Adam. And Ooh, he uh, was that on that Yeah, he was on that team. team. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, talk about, like you said, just uh, some incredible rowing stories out of Canada. And then... Uh, uh, and you know, what an amazing coach. I've, I've heard so many great things about him. Uh, yeah. Some, yeah. Some I, should, I don't mean stories. to sound judgmental on someone who has never coached me, but <laughs> Adam Creek would be, and I remember him talking about, uh, he did a TED Talk, and he talked about uh, aiming to fail every day. And you're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Pushing yourself, setting a standard. In essence, it was setting a standard that was so high you couldn't achieve it, and then trying again tomorrow and trying again tomorrow. And it's... You know, <coughs> excuse me, that's something that's going to work in certain moments and kill some people. And, and why would you want to be involved? And that's not going to get the best out of some people. And it, and it might, for a short term, elevate a group to the best in the world. It's individual and you're working with a team. So that's a challenge. Yeah. How did you make that transition from, as you mentioned, the kind of judo and the and the wrestling and the other things you did early then you go to rowing and then from there as jim mentioned earlier to some of the other olympic disciplines what what was that process like and why did you decide to go that way rather than um sticking with rowing and trying to make a go of that um at that that kind of world or olympic level well it's yeah it's a very unusual path but for me the the dream was always the olympic games and i didn't care what sport it would be I, I it was just amazing and magical to me and I wanted to be a part of it so each time I did a sport thinking this is it and got to a point and realized that the games were coming smaller they were harder to, harder and harder to come by and I was still too far away from what it would take to be world class and so I moved on to the next with with regard to uh, you asked specifically about what was it, wrestling to rowing or rowing to yeah, rowing? just ju- rowing just to all, all the transitions, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was, you know, we get tested on the the ergometer, and the ergometer now they use a concept two. Well, concept twos when I rode, I'm giving away how old mm-hmm. I am, uh, was just invented, and it was the first version of it, and it had like the hockey cards almost. That's that's yeah, it was kind of it was the leftover bike parts I think that the, <laughs> the brothers right. found yeah and put together. That's hilarious. That's right. Um, so I think the first, you know, it it was version two of a concept two where the 
the the flywheel was encased in something, but it wasn't, you know, you could still stick your finger through. So that gives you, if you've been a rower or a coach for a long time, that tells you exactly when I was a rower. And we did our testing on something completely different called the Dr. Jessinger's ergometer, which was this orange steel thing. And the difference was that there was no spring. You had to push the oar back to engage the flywheel again. And all our national team, you know, I could tell you exactly what a national team senior level score was, etc. And I was national team caliber. I was quite competitive for lightweight. And I was a lightweight back then. But there was no lightweight in the Olympics. And it got to the point where, you know, I wasn't going to wait until, you know, two or four uh, Olympic quadrennials went by where they started to incorporate lightweight rowing and it was getting harder and harder for me to you know I was 170 pounds and you had to max 160 uh, to be a lightweight so it was you know and I'm 210 now so it it was getting harder and uh, I was still growing in university and harder to maintain that size and I'm not six feet I'm a little bit under six feet so I'm not really designed to be a, a heavyweight rower so I thought I'm moving to Calgary for my university I just watched the 88 Olympics there's a sprint, there's a 10,000 meters, somewhere in there I'll find my distance. And again, was pretty successful almost immediately, but couldn't quite narrow the gap to what was world class. And I had a friend who was a bobsled coach, and uh, he said, you should do, you're a sprint speed skater, why don't you do some sprint training with us? And it'll probably help your starts for speed skating, if nothing else. And within a year, I was ranked higher in bobsleigh than I was in, in uh, speed skating. So I made that transition. And I would say that I was just as qualified to, be, to represent Canada in bobsleigh as I was in skeleton. But there are the politics in the bobsleigh. And if you want to have world-class equipment, the easiest way is to buy it yourself. Well, in bobsleigh, that's... You know, you're looking at six figures now. Back then, it was still it might have been sixty or seventy thousand dollars to have a world class sled, and and you know that's not feasible. And then you have to convince someone to be on your team, and you have two, you know, Olympic medalists uh, on the Canadian team at that time. So who are you going to convince to not go with the tried and true to be on your team? And so I thought, oh, I'll just switch to skeleton. It's a Calgary guy who's creating, his dad is a big uh, race car builder. And uh, he was creating the best sleds in the world. And the top Germans, the top, you know, Swiss, American, Canadian, the top sliders in the world were all using this equipment. I bought one for $5,000. I could have, you know, it's not cheap, but you could afford it yourself. And... If I did well, it was because of me. If I did poorly, it was because of me. And I would, you know, as a consequence, the learning curve was very steep and uh, it worked out as well as it could have. That's really interesting. Yeah. And um, so you mentioned being, you know, naturally a power athlete. Um, What is the rush that you get from moving quickly, powerfully, and particularly in the case of the bobsled and then the skeleton really fast down a bloody steep, icy hill? Well, it's, it's funny. I, how I would answer that question or how I answered that question, uh, 
I don't know, probably 15 years ago now, there was the first time I was asked that question, there was a commercial and it was an American commercial. And I think it was Gail Devers who might have been in. I'm pulling that name from 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 way back, but she would have been the, the top 100 meter hurdler in the world at the time. And the, the I don't I don't remember what it was advertising. It might have just been the the Olympics or something. But the question was world champion hurdle hurdler Gail Devers what's going through your mind when you're doing the hurdles and you flashed to her what she was thinking and it was one two three four five jump one two three four five jump and it's and it was kind of funny and I thought that's exactly what skeleton is and bobsled is it's not we it's not uh there's not you know anything you've done two thousand times doesn't have the same rush and for us, if you're going down a straightaway, your entire mentality is, I could be a few more inches this way. That's it. That's it. It's, I need to be relaxed. I need to be a sack of potatoes because that's a better shock absorber than if, if I have muscular tension. And I should be there and I'm initiating, initiating my steer right now and I'm off it right now. That's the only thing that you're, you're thinking of. Now, the push might be slightly different. Uh, and it's certainly, there are certainly uh, moments where, you know, people say, oh, you must be so scared. The, the <coughs> excuse me, Altenburg is a track in Germany. And the first time that I ever went there was when the World Cup circuit had been away for a while and was coming back for the first time in three or four years. And I watched three people get taken away in an ambulance before it was my turn to go first. And my teammate and I were watching in the, the, the Kreisel, the big uh, signature curve there. And that's where people were launching out and uh, landing in the track, but upside down and just getting crushed. And we said, are you, is this helping you in any way? Nope. Should we go to the top? Yeah. Okay. So there are moments when I wouldn't say I was scared, but the track had your complete and undivided focus and attention and when you get through that and you because there is an element of danger and if you get through it and you're successful and you improve there's certainly a thrill with that i would say yeah absolutely so um two big opponents for all athletes but you know especially at the olympics uh are, are doubts and fears and um and it's interesting, uh, you know, working with different athletes from different sports, you would think, you know, it would be like crashes or, you know, I've worked with race car drivers and, you know, and, and their biggest fear is getting lapped, <laughs> you know, not, not getting necessarily in a crash. It's more, it's more emotional than, than, than the physical concerns. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about how you dealt with for your first Olympics, uh, you know, doubts like, am I good enough to be here? Am I good enough to compete? I mean, 10th place finish, you made noise there in your first Olympics. And then, uh, so about, you know, confidence over doubt, and then also the fears of the pre-performance anxiety. How were you able to get your butterflies to fly in formation? Well, the butterflies, that's the easy one, I would say. You visualize and you go through again and again and again. It's, I sort of, I, I, my wife probably doesn't love me sharing this, but for Torino, we, I'd been there, you know, I'd been a, away from home for a couple of weeks and she had been getting 
by herself or with she was with a few friends to the hotel in Torino and then had to take certain buses to get there that day. So we said, okay, I'll meet you at this corner. We'll say good luck or make sure you're there and then I can forget about it and just focus on the race. And when we met, she couldn't hold back the tears. She was so stressed out and had no outlet for it. And so I was comforting her and people, you know, which, which, on the surface, you think, well, you should have been the one who was stressed. You had to, to do the race. But the reality is, and I, this is how I express it, I had an outlet for the reality. I can do a warm-up. I can burn calories. I can visualize how I want it to go. And that's, you know, in a, in a let's say, the two hours leading up to a competition, you're probably visualizing, or this is what I did, and I would, I would say that the rest of the world should do it more <laughs> if they don't do it, if they can't say the same thing, is I was probably visualizing the correct line more than I was not. So I probably did over an hour of visualizing and imagining what I was going to do in the two hours leading up. And it was always, you know, that's something that is a skill that needs to be practiced. And, and you, visualization implies it's just, has to do with vision, but it's I'm relaxing my body and pretending to go through the corners and feel what it's going to feel like in addition to what I can. It's so technically precise what you have to do. You can't do enough preparation for that. So given Torino, I probably had 35 runs, including the Olympics in total. So 35 minutes of practice for that Olympic experience. And a few thousand minutes of practice in my head leading up to it. So that's how you regulate the nerves. And I found that was pretty effective. Um, and there are other ways too, but that's, that's the main answer. And I'm sorry, Jim, refresh, uh, the confidence was the other one, right? Yeah, well, what I love what you're talking about is uh, before a competition, uh, you know, I think one of the goals is to move from the left brain to the right brain in terms of, you know, going from thinking and, and analyzing and judging, um, you know, what if scenarios, all that kind of stuff to getting more in the visualization, which keeps you in the moment, uh, keeps you focused on the task at hand um, and prepares you for what you're about to do. So I think that's brilliant. And then it kind of relates to exactly what I was asking about uh, how to manage doubts and, 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 you know, am I good enough and the confidence level uh, you're going against the best of the best, you know, on the world's biggest stage. And uh, by doing that, you're also not getting caught up in thinking about that either. <laughs> so, but yeah, tell us more yeah. about your confidence going into your first games. And then, uh, and then, you know, it's going to be fun uh, talking about, you know, your preparation for, for the next Olympics. But uh, yeah, tell us about, you know, just in terms of confidence, like, am I really good enough to be here? You know, you hear a lot of athletes and other performers talk about imposter syndrome, you know, do I, am I really as good as I think I am? Well, for me, it, it ties back to uh, your confidence is based on your past performance. Future performance, uh, the best predictor for future performance is your best. That's why we do a targeted selection interview style for applying for the fire department, for example. So my preparation for the Olympics itself, so let's say the three training days leading up to my second Olympic race, my worst training run was fourth, had a rank of fourth. And that's me jogging off the top because I hadn't, I was getting over an injury. So I was very particular as to when I was doing the high intensity 
speed training. And so I never did a full out sprint push start in training. And even so, my worst ranking was fourth in training. When other people are doing, you know, polishing runners and and race suits and pushing as fast as they can. So that told me I'm, I'm in this and I have a, a very good chance of being on the podium. At least you don't, you know, it's, I say it's like downhill skiing a little, you know, you saw this in the slalom yesterday. A carve is very fast. A, you turn it slightly more and that's break. And just like there's one section yesterday where it's like, oh, and they're eight tenths behind. They were leading and now they're eight tenths behind because it's, you're stopping. So it's, it's too easy to make a mistake. So I'd never say I'm going for the gold. No, I'm going to be the best version that I can. But the confidence is based on previous performance. That's, that's my opinion. And I never had, I never really worried about imposter syndrome because I had consistently perform. I'd been a world champion a couple of years before and on the world podium the year before and on the podium in the world cup circuit that year. So there was, it was all about, I think the biggest lesson for me was if I take care of my business, if I do what I need to do and, you know, do my homework and cross my T's and dot my I's, then my performance takes care of itself. And that's so freeing to not worry about what anyone else is doing. And you know what else you remind me of? Uh, in, in Canada, we had these pre-Olympic seminars, conferences, and we bring in all these speakers to talk to the, the potential Olympians. So I went to one before Torino. It was in the summer, so a good seven months before or whatever. And... Uh, Someone was talking about confidence and they talked about being invincible and that sort of thing. And I, and I said, well, I have doubts all the time. Like I worry and I think I've spent so much time away from home and not, you know, making, <laughs> not making a million dollars, that's for sure. And I, and I could have a bad day and it could be all for nothing. And I worry about that. And I worry that you know, the, they'll be do all these biographies about me as a, you know, a world champion who has a chance of winning an Olympic medal and then I'll fail. And I hear stories about how confident these other champions were. And I was like, are you sure that that's like, you never have doubts. And then I think it was a question and answer after the seminar and someone else stood up and said, yeah, I was working with so-and-so before he won his three medals in swimming or whatever it was. And he was crying the day before because he had a bad workout and he thought it's over and he has no, you know what I mean? So it's, that's such a natural human thing. Um, and knowing that that will happen and knowing you will have doubts is, uh, is really important. And I, there was, um, Erica Weeb is a Calgarian and she's a world, she, I don't know if she's a world, but she was an Olympic champion uh, in freestyle wrestling. And that's, that's the one that I reference in the book because there was a little biography I saw on her and she said, I, I look around and I, and I wonder what people are thinking. And if they're looking at me thinking, how could she be Olympic champion? And it's like, that's the first honest portrayal of what, you know, the pinnacle top athlete in the world thinks just like everybody else. And that was, that was beautiful to me. Yeah. Are there any other 
suppositions or myths about an Olympian mindset that you tried to explode or take to task a little bit in the book? Yeah, well, my own path to being good at rowing but not amazing and being good at speed skating but not, not amazing and being good at, you know, uh, wrestling in high school but not still a big chunk away is it made me appreciate and then finding skeleton and bobsleigh and and like oh okay you're old but you're also perfectly suited to this and it's reflected in the first time that you race it made me realize that we're all suited for some things and not suited for others and there and i.e there's an undeniable genetic component to everything we do now if you're a hockey player or even a basketball player, <coughs> excuse me, there are examples of Steve Nash. Again, I'm my, my Canadian list of Canadian heroes here. Uh, not physically dominant, but twice uh, an MVP. And people said he should have won a third one, actually, in, in, a, in a row there. And he, I don't even, I assume he can probably dunk, but he's, you know, athletically, he's not in the same league as so many of his contemporaries. But because of the nature of the game, he can execute a strategy. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you're suited to something. If, if you're in a team sport, there's room in the strategy and so on. But if you're a hundred meter person, you're either built to do that or you're not. If you are... Uh, you want to be a center. You want to face off against Shaq and you're 5'11". Well, it's not going to go well for you. There's genetic, you know, that Kipchoge, the two-hour marathon guy. If he's 120 pounds, I, I, I'd eat my hat. You know what I mean? It's physics. You can't avoid the physics of it. So I feel like I have an awareness of that now. And eventually, or how I say is I got to skeleton because it was the one that required what I was good at and didn't penalize me for what I wasn't good at. So there's a, you know, we have, what do they call it? Fundamental attribution error. So we look at, Michael Phelps is the example I use in the book. And when he did his comeback in 2016, in Canada, I, you know, I assume it'd be a similar sort of thing watching on NBC or whatever the American coverage is. But in Canada, it was like, how can this guy take two years off and come back and be so good again? And they talked about mental toughness and they talked about training environment and mental characteristics. That's the fundamental attribution area. If so, error. If you are good at something, we assume it to be because of mental you know, characteristics, mental characteristics. And no one said, well, if you're going to genetically engineer a human to be like a fish, it would look a lot like Michael Phelps. And that's relevant. That's, that's the reality. If, if you're going to have a rebound contest and Shaq decided to go in it, I think I'd still pick him. You know, like I don't know who's going to bump him. <laughs> he might not be as agile or as fit, certainly, but who's going to bump him out of the way uh, for getting a, a rebound? It's you're built to do certain things. And if you're more built to do anything, therefore you're also not built to do other things. And it's not something that you should really be worried about the mental so I guess that's a, a long-winded way of saying the champion isn't necessarily the guy who's the most mentally tough the 50th ranked person could be more mentally tough 
but you'll never know it because they'll never be on the same. And Jim, I think you, you posted once on social media a question, who do you think are the most mentally tough athletes? Do you remember that? And uh, uh, the answer, you could have predicted who the answers were, Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan. And you and I engaged back and forth a little bit there because I said, the truth is you have no idea. It depends on your definition of mentally tough, first of all. And number two, you have no idea if it's toughness or just loving being there. Yep. You know? And so would you call that toughness? Mentally consistent? Hard to argue with, uh, against Michael Jordan or, or Tiger Woods. But I, you think of... When someone says mentally tough, I think handling adversity and you are, you know, you're coming off an injury and someone, you know, humiliated you in the last competition and you have to be mentally tough and push, put your best foot forward. And I think that that for sure that happens to everybody, but it's also most of the time, I would say it's, it's, you can't imagine being anywhere else and it's, you're dying to do what you've been dreaming of doing, which isn't tough at all, you know. And people, people say, uh, uh, to your point, Phil, about me doing all different sports to get there, people say, oh, wow, perseverance. Well, if I loved every minute of it, was it perseverance or was I doing something that I would rather have not been doing anything else? And therefore, is it perseverance at all? Or what do you mean by excuse me, what do you mean by perseverance? That I did one thing for a long time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, also, you're, you're an example of what Dave Epstein talks about in his book, Range, about having a large sampling period and a large sample size of things. And obviously, people then try to reduce that down to the, well, are you in the, you know, the Ericsson camp, that, you know, popularized by Gladwell? And that's where that book you know dave talks about this pretty openly he was asked to take the other side of a debate to gladwell specialization versus range and then that led him down a you know six six and a half year journey to you know is this a book and if so what is my actual take rather than them just saying well here's what gladwell's gonna say we want you to sit across and, and just take the other position just like <laughs> yeah. high school or secondary school debate class but um, do you think that, that that sampling period and finding not just the things that you could apply, the mental skills that you talked about, but also just, as you said, the physics, the genetics, the predisposition, the enjoyment of, that that really contributed to you landing on, on what you did? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's nature nurture, and there's no debate at all. <laughs> you say that some people say the nature nurture debate. It's nature and nurture with no debate. It's you can't avoid either of them. Now, as I said before, if you're a hockey player, then you've got examples of Zdeno Chara and Theron Fleury. It was a guy who played for the Flames a couple of years ago, and I think he might be 5'7 or 5'8. Um, so there's, there doesn't appear to be a body type for certain things, and therefore we assume it's heart and grit and that sort of thing. But David Epstein's side of the coin versus the... You know, uh, uh, Daniel Coyle, I would say, is another author talking about uh, the environment and your, you know, being an expert is really about myelin on nerves cells. It can't not be both. And depending on the um, 
demands of the sport, if it's something like something that's very, what they're really talking about is something that requires a tremendous amount of skill. Uh, if, it's, if it's running 100 meters, there's technique involved, but it's really about training and are you suited to do it? It's Michael Phelps before, you know, he could spend the next 20 years on the couch and, and then come off the couch and humiliate almost anyone who's, who's been training but wasn't suited for it. So you can't avoid the genetic aspect. And my, you could say that my story or my journey is really lending credibility to both sides of that argument because the, the nature side of it is I tried one, <coughs> apologize for that. I tried one thing, it worked for a while, I was pretty good, but still nowhere near national team. And I did that three times before I found bobsleigh and skeleton, and, uh, and it was. So there was obviously a genetic aspect. But the nurture and, and having all those experience was really a, a very important part of the process for me because it taught me about me. And I can give you, you know, I can give you uh, an example just to use a weight training program as one subcomponent of this. I spent all year once, I had a, a, a track coach who Olympic lifting worked fantastically for him. And he said, okay, we're going to do, you know, high pulls and cleans and, and all these different subcomponents of Olympic lifting. And I did that for months and it did nothing, nothing for me. And I switched back to what I knew worked for me. And within two months, I was back to where I needed to be. And that was a valuable experience because, you know, I look at some of the great trainers that are in the same areas that I've been in. And I can go, I'd pull a muscle in the first week. I'd be injured in the first week doing that program. And, and what I found for me was the stronger I was, the more powerful I was. The speed training Speed for me was a product of how strong I was. That full stop, almost. And that's, have, that's having the benefit of trying it from a running perspective and building strength after, from a power perspective. I've gone through the gambit and I knew what worked for me, which is just experience. So, yeah. Well, what I would say though, that really stands out for me is uh, the courage to try. Um, on social media, I, I, I tweeted yesterday, I think it was, um, you know, the only impossible journey is the one that you don't start. And um, you definitely demonstrated in a variety of ways the courage to try something new or different. Um, and I think that that's important to mention. Uh, and then also, too, I like how you had big goals and dreams from early on that, look, somehow, some way, I'm going to be an Olympian. Um uh, and I think that's really, really cool. Uh, take us, uh, take us to uh, after your first games. You know, you finished tenth. Uh, you, you did a great job there. Uh, that must have been such a rush. How did you pace yourself for the next four years? And you know, and 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 did you feel a lot of expectations to be like, okay, now this time, I, you know, I'm gunning for the podium? Yeah, it's the way I say it is. I had dreamt my whole life about being an Olympian. And then when I was an Olympian, it was not a wonderful fairy tale story. I had just won in the race immediately preceding the Salt Lake Olympics. I had just won my first World Cup medal. And I thought I had a chance. I thought I had a chance to be on the podium. And 
and someone I was 34 and someone asked me if I was a coach there, you know, <laughs> and I, so it wasn't, it wasn't particularly like I really related to the fact that people say there's a post Olympic depression. And I went through that because there's so much media attention leading up to it. And then when you don't perform, if you won a medal, then they celebrate it. And there's, you know, you're invited places and they, everyone wants to talk to you and, and tell us how it was. But if you don't, this is how I describe it. The whole media attention focus, it just up and moves to the next person and they couldn't, that's it. You, like no one cares to talk to you from that point forward. And that has drastically affected how I see the Olympics now because I felt that. But in my event... Jim Shea was an American slider who won my event in Salt Lake City. And the next day, I was at the same track, probably watching a bobsled heat or something. And I overheard a conversation between one of his coaches and someone else. And they said, when, it, when we woke up yesterday and it was snowing, I knew we nailed it. And what he was talking about was the fact that they had chosen runners that they knew were very good and very fast under certain conditions. And it matched perfectly to what the conditions, what the weather forecast was, or they, I guess it was a little bit of a gamble, but it was perfect and they were on the best possible equipment. And for myself, having recently switched from bobsleigh, in bobsleigh, it's, it's fairly common to have race runners and practice runners. And so that's, that's what I had. And I, I came to appreciate very quickly from that moment that I had, you know, I was a lot heavier than the average skeleton athlete. So I needed equipment that distributed my body weight better. And if I wasn't aware of that, then I was impeding my own velocity going down a track. So I was very motivated by that um, and came fifth at the world championships the next year and then won the world championships the year after that. So that was a very, you know, I was, I was 39 in Torino. And so my physical peak was probably maintaining, but I wasn't going to get dramatically faster from that one Olympics to the next. I did a little bit, I think, but uh, my improvements were going to be on the technical side of it. And so I invested a lot of time and thought and some money into creating equipment that was best suited for me if we went to somewhere that demanded hard steering and had hard ice you know it was cold and so it was hard you need you needed runners that would grip the ice or conversely soft ice i didn't want i needed to create runners that wouldn't wouldn't have me stick in dig into the ice too much and slow me down so I really dove into that aspect of it. So I wasn't impeding myself. Well, yeah. in, in terms of the, the, the courage part, the, uh, another aspect of that is, is uh, I'm sure there were a lot of naysayers. You're too old. You're getting too old. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's sort of a younger man's sport. Uh, did, were you, how aware of that were you? And, and, and how did you, what did you say to yourself to overcome that? Well, I would say, there are some there are some great young skeleton sliders but until recently the best 
guy in the history of the sport was Gregor Stolle of Switzerland. He was older than me. And one of the best, maybe top 10 all time, was Kazuhiro Koshi. And he was older than me. And what I can tell you in hindsight is that my skill as a driver, in theory, it just gets better and better and better. You have a feel that you need to develop. And athletically, I was able to compete at certainly near, near or at my peak, which wasn't necessarily like there was one or two guys who would be borderline international caliber sprinters. But I was almost at my best right to the very last moment of my career and just in theory getting better and better on the technical aspects of it. And, if, and I would say this also, the, the, really, the people who are very successful who are younger are typically German. And if you're German, you probably started luge when you could have started as young as six or seven years old. So a lot of the German national team are very young in that they're 22 or three, but in many cases, they've been sliding and understanding the pressures and understanding the feel you get for a track and how to slingshot off a curve and all of these very, very subtle things, very specific to that environment that, that is based on feel. They've been doing that in many cases. They're well into their second decade of doing that. And they're competing against people who are older, but haven't been at it as long as, as they have. So the technical aspect is something that takes a lot of time. So I was, I was lucky in the sense that, you know, I didn't have, you know, two new newborn kids at home or anything like that, that I, those, those life changing moments hadn't happened for me yet. I didn't have a, you know, uh, mom and dad weren't saying quit sports and get into the family business. There was nothing like that that pulled me away. And so it was still something that I loved to do. And then once I was in skeleton, it was okay, you're, you're showing the potential, give it another shot, give it another shot. And so it, it, everything, the, the planets were aligned for me. Yeah. You're, you're really hitting on a lot of sources of self-efficacy or confidence in terms of one, you talked about demonstrated performance. I know I've done this in practice. I could do it in competition. Uh, you're consistent, you know, in terms of like, I never finished below fourth in some of these training runs. And then another, so demonstrated performance or past success, you really leaned on to give you confidence that uh, I can do this. And then uh, another source of confidence is, is sort of role modeling, you know, modeling others. And you're saying like, hey, these other guys are pretty damn good and they're old or older than me. So why not me too? So I really like how you're picking from different sources to get you in a great state of mind to compete your best. Yeah. And I, I would, uh, yeah, the, di the different levels of, of motivation, right? And, and a love of it and being a part of a team. That was another, you know, doing it for the other guys as well, even though we were an individual sport. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that was my number one, you know, having a bigger purpose in mind. I, don't, I wouldn't say that was the number one thing. But in Salt Lake, we, we were like this. And a couple of years after Salt Lake, we were, you know, very competitive within the team and we rectified that and that was that was a huge weight lifted and we we really had you know the canadian men's team in those three years let's say leading up we had there were three of us and and it was a four person a four-man team so 
The fourth was also very, very good, but the three of us had all won medals at a world level. And if, if you're new to the sport and you go down, how valid is your feedback for me about what you did and how effective it was in corner seven? Well, that feedback that I was getting was from a world, a world Cup winner and a former world champion, and so who weighed about as much as I did and was using the same equipment. So it was an absolute wealth of, inform- of valid, valid information. We really had something special there. Yeah, that's um, definitely an underrated part of it, right? Is a, you mentioned earlier kind of the environment. Well, that sounds like a, about as much of a high-performance environment as you can get and just pushing each other and being willing and open to share those tips and tricks. Yeah, well, it's... It's you came to realize that my best year ever, where I finished second overall in the World Cup standings and won the World Championships. We didn't have a technical coach that year. Our our previous coach left, and it was before our next one arrived. And that was, you know, and my teammates would tell you that as a team we had a great year. It was my best year ever. And, and part of the reason for that is a coach can only ever be at one spot on the track or you film at a second spot on the track. Whereas I had two and often three teammates who could tell you exactly what they did and had a good suggestion for you if, if, if you had an issue in every track. And there were, you know, you go to the same track maybe you've been to five times before for the first time this year. And corner seven is just different. And we, and did you get it? Yes. Okay. Well, here's what I did. Okay. And then that was valuable information or none of us got it. Okay. You do this, you do that. And you try something in between and we'll talk at the end of this. And it was an, a very effective way of amassing a tremendous amount of information and we were lucky in that we were willing to share that information and it was very good information based on our uh, experience. Yeah, you mentioned earlier the something that I think is really underrated and I've had a couple of conversations with folks at, at Fusion Sport recently, you know, who make the uh, smarter base athlete management system that takes all the inputs from the wearables and then visualizes things and shows trends and models and um a couple of the guys there were mentioning the the fact that being available um it is really important i.e not being injured or ill can you talk a little bit about over the course of a four-year cycle you mentioned some types of weight training that were not well suited to you and you, you got to know that so you were able to to maybe potentially avoid injury there. But what were some other ways that you made sure that whether it was the World Cup, the World Championships, the Olympics, selection events, or just daily training, that you were able to put your hand up and say, yep, here I am? Well, <clears throat> your, your example is, is a good one. And, and because I'm, you know, I had a, a record for being the oldest gold medalist in the in an individual sport in the winter olympics there for a while and it's like how did you do that at that age and it, and it's um jerry rice saw him in an interview once saying yeah i just i trained smarter and what he meant i think in his explanation is exactly what i would tell you is i learned i continued to learn about myself and understand how to most efficiently get me to my best 
state of preparedness. And I would say also that um, I, I find that I'm more likely to get sick if I push myself over a certain threshold, which means I'm tired. I'm still a little bit tired tomorrow. I didn't get quite enough sleep. See, most of, if you're a sprinter, half of being a good sprinter is being loose, rested, not, no muscular tension. Well, that, that involves less training, you know, and more therapy than more training. I'm going to do more sprints, more sprints. Well, I knew that that didn't work. And I knew, you know, from a nutritional perspective, that was important. And the stress well, I, could, I was good at alleviating the stress from the visualization and the mental, excuse me, the mental rehearsal of doing the run correctly again and again is probably the most effective training. And I look at skeleton today and I see people who are the most extreme, extremely dedicated track athletes who don't put into the, the time for the mental aspects. And it was the monobob. I don't know if you watched the monobob at all from the, uh, the Beijing exim- uh, Olympics. That, that event was just a, a day or two ago as we're recording this. And the difference, the winners almost had nothing to do with push speed. It was all driving ability, which on that track in particular, which is no one's hardly been on it. There was a training week, which is mandated by the international governing body and the, the, the Chinese organizers, like, you know, every Olympics that I was a part of made it so that international competitors only got access to the, what they were told they had to provide us. And it's an extremely challenging track. So the winner, I don't, I don't care what the, discipline is the winner will be the best driver the winner is the one who's put in the time for the mental aspects and a a canadian woman got got fifth and uh she had the she was first after the first run and ninth after the first run and it's I, i would never be you know martin's dukers who's the 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 best slider in the history of the sport had two crappy runs also so i i could never be I have no idea, you know, what their training routines are, but clearly it has to do with not four more hundreds on the push, but, you know, those five spots on that track where you're going to lose two or three tenths is much more relevant than knocking five hundreds off, off the push. It was just such a demanding track. And, you know, and that's me watching it on TV, not being in, in China, so... It's, it's, it's easy for me to <laughs> sit back and be, uh, you know, tell you my opinions on it. But uh, yeah, you, well, you bring up something that I think has relevance for anyone listening that, you know, isn't even involved in a sport at a high level, which is stop trying to put in your effort on something where there's real, really no leverage point. And we're talking about those, you know, one, two, three, four hundredths of a second and start looking at those corners or those areas where there are potentially bigger inefficiencies and work on removing those or removing those friction points right have you any ideas there around kind of how that may apply to to any kind of high performance 
Well, the, what pops into my set, head when you say that is the n- amount of time I've seen in different sports, and I can think of a rower and I can think of bobsleigh, where they're spending so much time trying to correct the technique. Uh, I remember, you know, years ago, and the, at my university, there was a rower who was a two or three time Olympian. I don't know if he ever won an Olympic medal, but at that level, um, and he, he tilted his head a lot and he, he looked like he was, had all these extraneous movements. And in the end, I think what they should have done was just let him be him. And you have people who, I can think of a, watching the, the New York Marathon, this would be like 15 years ago or something, and this guy who won it had such a vertical bounce in each step. And the commentators were very critical of him and said, you know, if he could, you know, look at all the energy that's going into that motion up and down, if you could transfer that forward, he'd be so much faster. And that might be true, but he, he might be more, you know, to David Epstein's, the sports gene point, he might be all tendon and that might be no caloric expenditure for him at all. And that might be the most efficient way calorie wise for him to maintain that speed. But we have it, you know, and I, and I can think of Michael Johnson, who was, you know, almost like a robot in terms of his running technique, breaking down the technique of other runners. And I don't, you know, if there was ever a sport where efficiency didn't matter, it's something that's over in nine and a half, you know, nine point eight seconds, or, or, or whatever it is. That's 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 an oversimplification of it. But um, how that, you know, and how, and you, I guess your question was how that might apply beyond. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that one. Um, it certainly, it certainly all ties back to you knowing you and playing to your strengths and not necessarily trying to fit the mold or the stereotype of what people think it should be. Um, you know, I don't know. I've just, I, I'm getting other examples that are popping into my mind, but they're sport examples. Yeah, well, I mean, so. in, in running, I remember the British journalist Richard Asquith wrote a great biography. There were two Zatapec biographies that came out within a year of it, one another, and I haven't read the other one, but um, I think his is called Today We Die a Little or something along those lines. And he said, yeah, one commentator had said, you know, well, Zatopek runs like a flagging horse, you know, a horse that's straggling near the back at the end and just trying to hang on. And it's like, well, the guy won the 5K and 10K, so basically the Mo Farah double, but then his first Olympics, having never run the marathon, also thought, yeah, I'll line up and give that a shot too, and then won it. So <laughs> imagine, you know, somebody doing that, and also is obviously way ahead of his t- time in terms of interval training and everything else. Um, or, or then a more recent example is Paula Radcliffe, the, the British runner with the, who had the bit exaggerated kind of head bob and well, things worked out pretty well for her in, in terms of yeah. holding the women's marathon um, record for record. for the longest time. And and so, yeah, you're right. And sometimes those are just, um, you know, what someone like Sue Falzo might say, just as you alluded to, just stru- structure and what the intersection of structure and function. You know, maybe somebody's, 
hips are calibrated a little bit different to the person with the in quotes textbook form and so yes it is a compensation but it's one that allows them to not bleed energy in ways that you're not even seeing yeah or generate energy by getting more out of the calf by bouncing seven pounds off the ground every time i i don't know it's yeah it, uh, sorry i had an example there that you you reminded me of but it it something else i was thinking was it, it reminds me of of parenting frankly where my kids are completely different from me and completely different from each other and for a long time we tried to discipline or raise our eldest son how we were raised and it and it was we did him a tremendous disservice i think because that didn't work for him and we were we were making things tougher for him by trying to fit a square peg into a round hole in in essence and you know why would you try and change something i i feel like for a self-aware athlete we often you know like uh, one that pops into my mind is the rate and depth of your breathing is not something anyone ever practices and I don't know if I saw the study myself, but my understanding is the research says that you will naturally do that to optimize your caloric requirement to the amount of air you pump in and out of your lungs. You know, and the one exception might be swimming there where you can't breathe freely. But so much of what we do is playing to our strengths and it naturally occurs in the way that's the most efficient for you to do. And... We try to, people are very comfortable being critical of other people's technique or, you know, the, the marathoner who is bouncing a lot or Paula Radcliffe's uh, head bob. You can't say definitively that wasn't the secret to her success. It's just that's how you were raised. You had a coach who told you not to do it, you know, or you have what you think. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember the example, example I was going to think of. The best uh, 5,000 and 10 meter, 10,000 meter speed skater is a Swedish guy right now. And on that track where no one's near to world records, he broke the world record in the 10,000 meters. And he skates completely different from, he does what we were always told was a mistake that, that zaps efficiency. And what he does is, is if you can see me here, this is not going to translate very well to a to a, an audio only. I just realized as I'm I'm looking at you on the Zoom call is his head pivots from left to right as if he was I don't know uh, uh, what's an example I can't think of, any, of an example uh, but it's and what I think he's doing in very basic terms and I'm and I'm struggling with how to describe this without visually showing it is I think he turns it looks like the torso is turning which is absorbing energy but I think he does it secondary so it's adding to the length of his stride and we look at that and go we were always taught not to do that and say things like imagine if he didn't do that technical error I think what he's doing is something that's more efficient that everyone else could be doing to skate faster 
Yeah, you even heard that with commentators. You were talking about sprinters, like with with Usain Bolt, like oh, there's too much hip roll and this kind of thing. And yeah, there was, there's a great example of where, um, you know, another great coach uh, in in that discipline, Charlie Francis, you know, where was reviewing video and somebody said, well, it looked like the knee was kind of caving in on on one side or another, and he was like. Yeah, but he just ran like a 9.83 there. So I think we'll leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ben Johnson is an, an excellent example. And, and you could say, you know, you look at powerlifting and there are some people who put their feet a foot apart and can squat 500 pounds. And there are people who have their knees quite wide apart, like a sumo stance, and they can do 600 pounds or whatever. You know, it's it's... That's something that's those two styles seem to compete on an even playing field. And so therefore, it has to do with your structure and where you're, you know, how thick and what angle and moment arms of muscular attachments. That's if you're going to measure those things, then maybe you can offer something to an individual athlete. But Ben Johnson ran very inefficiently from the sense that he took up the whole lane and his feet were very wide apart. But, you know, if he's the kind of guy who squats a hundred more pounds, if, if his feet are wide apart, then that's the fastest way of covering that distance. Yeah. What's interesting about this is on a, uh, it's a, it's also what we're talking about as a metaphor for resisting socialization in general that, you know, socialization tries to make everyone the same. Um, uh, and um, and so what you're talking about, I mean, I was thinking about a lot of golf examples when you guys were talking about some of these different athletes. You know, you see a lot of swings. Jim Furyk is one that his his he's uh, one of the all time leading money winners, a U.S. Open champion in golf. And, uh, you know, his swing has been described as an octopus falling out of a tree. And so, <laughs> you know, imagine if someone had changed that swing when he was growing up and tried to fit it into this textbook example, what a golf swing should look like. Um but, you know, it's also a reminder, too, in terms of, you know, what are the forces trying to change you and, you know, when to listen, when not to listen and, you know, what's best for you. And so I like how you're talking about that, uh, Duff and Phil, in terms of, you know, maybe it's about being the best version of what you have instead of trying to be the best version of what someone else thinks you should have. Um, I, I think that's important. Now, after the Olympics, you went through the post-Blues Depression and working with some current Olympians right now in Beijing, and we're already talking about that before they even leave. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, expect some, uh, you know, that it's almost like the couple weeks heading into the Games, let's do more of the visualization stuff instead of trying to overtrain last minute physically. And, and so make it a little bit more about sports psychology. And then after Olympics, it's going to be a lot about mental health, you know, for the next few weeks. But you ended up, uh, you had an amazing season uh, after Salt Lake City, uh, 2003 to 2004. Then you, in 2004, you won the world championships. And then, and then a bronze in 2005. So you, had, you were heading into the Olympics, your second Olympics in Turin, on, at least from the outside, it seems like on a, on a major hot streak. Yeah. Um, which, which was good because I knew I wasn't there for the long run. That's the one time where I was very much aware of my age and the fact that Vancouver was going to be the host in 2010. I knew I would never be anywhere near at my best if I tried to hang along, hang on that long. So I knew it was a one shot thing for me, but it was, yeah, 
tell us about that experience. You know, the ultimate dream of everyone is to win an Olympic gold medal, and and, and you did it. And your teammate uh, was a killer too. I mean, uh, that that uh, Olympics was loaded uh, in your event. Uh, Jeff Payne was an amazing uh, skeleton uh, racer. So yeah, tell us about that that uh, battle. Well, by that, you know, to my previous point, by that point, it wasn't a battle. Yeah. I mean, it was no different than uh, any two competitors. You know, everyone, you know, when I started, it was sort of like, well, I'm not going to help you to beat me. And then it was like, if we pool our resources, look at the information that we have. And that was such a wonderful thing to do because as I came to appreciate, by then I had appreciated the fact that you don't win because you withhold some secret information from someone else. You win by executing to the best of your ability. And so if you execute then and you don't win, then I'm happy to say congratulations to the person who beat me. In fact, that's, that's what I had done my entire life until I found Skeleton. So, yeah, that was, and, and Paul Bohm was the third member of that team, and Paul finished fourth. And he, as, I don't know how familiar you are with the sliding sports, but in Skeleton, um, you, the ice in that case was about minus eight, eight, minus eight or minus ten, something in that neighborhood. So that's very brittle, hard ice. And, you know, a little chunk will break off here and there. And so they sweep the groove of any kind of impediment there after every slider. And what Paul did was he came out of the groove on his first run. The sled went sideways and he smacked immediately into the wall. And that's not something that, that's something that would be difficult to do if you're trying to do that on purpose. And every once in a while it just happens and it's most likely because there was just a little chunk of ice that was at the exact wrong moment for Paul. And then, and the frustrating aspect of that is that him hitting the wall there with essentially no speed compared to what you were going to hit further down the track, that cost him more than the difference between uh, fourth and third place. And so we had a chance for my team to finish first, second, and third uh, in the sport. And Canada has twice in a, in a Winter Olympic event finished first, second, and fourth. No one's ever gone one, two, three uh, for Canada. So, and Paul was the consummate teammate and, and is a wonderful, kind, supportive person. And that's my one negative that I have looking back at that, that we that we couldn't have swept or for Paul specifically, that he wasn't, you know, for something that was absolutely not his doing or uh, it wasn't a mistake. It was something that just happened and that, that uh, we otherwise wouldn't have been this historic, I guess we are historic, no one's ever gone one, two, four, but, but uh, um, you know, something that would have been news for the entire Olympic world and not just something that was the best that Canada had ever done or, you know, you know what I'm trying to say there. So, yeah. And I'm sorry, I distracted myself from what your original question was. Well, t tell us about your, your gold medal winning race. Ah, well, it was the first run. It, it, it was two of the best runs I had in my career when it mattered most. And the atmosphere before 
it, before I mentioned how my wife was crying and I was able to console her, it was, that almost put me in a separate mindset. Like, I'm good. I'm relaxed. I'm someone who comforts somebody else. I'm not struggling with the stress. And I focused on, you know, the, the visualization. And I was physically ready. And, and literally three weeks prior to that, it was, it was the perfect mindset for me because of the circumstances leading up to it. And I had a, a crash in St. Moritz, which was the second last World Cup of the season, before, literally three weeks before that race. And I hit a wall coming out of the famous horseshoe curve in St. Moritz, and I thought I had broken a rib, and I couldn't lie on a sled, and I got a, an x-ray done in St. Moritz, and there was no broken bone, but I had a rib, and I said that to the doctor at the time, I had a rib that I could push in my armpit, and it would pop out of place at my sternum, and I could push it at my sternum, and it would move in my armpit, and I thought for sure it was broken, but it was, it was not. And, and, but obviously that wasn't a good thing. And I couldn't lie on a sled, so I came back to Calgary. And it turned out that that was the best possible scenario that I, couldn't have ha- that I could have had. Because, and, and think of it from a mindset perspective also. I'm three weeks out, and I don't know if I'm going to... This is my last Olympics, and I don't know if I can participate and then I get some, I, it obviously wasn't broken, and everyone else is trying to do sprint training in a snow-covered parking lot in the mountains somewhere, and I'm on a running track, and I'm sleeping in my own bed, and I'm getting rested and getting some good training. And I did some training on the Calgary track, and I'd had a technical issue with my sled that I figured out, and suddenly I'm going two kilometers on my home track faster than I was. And so it was so fresh in my mind that I wasn't going to get to compete. So I was just thrilled to be there. And I, I think that alleviated a lot of the stress that I, that I might have had. And so I had two of, as I say, the best runs that I've ever had. And I, uh, my therapist, who is uh, uh, a friend of mine, and our kids played hockey together, so I still see him was he started his own podcast, actually, and he had me on. We were reliving some of these things, and he, he still talks about how, you know, we were sitting in first, second, and fourth with r- one run to go, and some of the corny jokes and how light it was when your, the stakes of your whole career are just hanging in the balance, and we were completely happy and calm and focused on what we needed to do and visualization was a big part of that and you know how you know I was it was two runs only back then as opposed to uh, four run total time and I was already I think I was the like close to a second ahead of fourth place at that point so I was already it was going to take something major for me not to be on the podium. So it was the best possible scenario for me to be relaxed and to be my best. And my competitors played a role in that also because I, there was a handful of guys, not young, been in it for a while, technically brilliant, like myself getting older, who did it for many years when it wasn't a part of the Olympic program, 
who would wish you your best race and be the first to congratulate you if you beat them. And that I am absolutely grateful for that. I'm grateful for my teammates. And uh, yeah, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been the same experience, and I wouldn't have been the same mentally if I had been thinking, oh, everybody, you know, hates me or wanted to sabotage me or or hopes I trip getting onto my sled. I never had to face any of that, and I'm grateful for it. And that's part of what I wanted to share in the book. Because what's the, what's the point? You know, if you, you know, if you're an asshole with a gold medal and you retire, you're just an asshole. And it's what's the point of putting someone else through that and making your own life miserable for this distorted sense of trying to chase something that may or may not happen that's entirely dependent upon your execution. Yeah, I love that. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, that's the true gold medal is uh, knowing that you did your best and, um, and you did it the right way uh, and, and being a true sportsman, uh, I think is really cool. And that's what brings out the best in everyone. Well, you say that as if, as if I, you know, I, I was a true sportsman. I was in a, it was easy, easy for me to do that because I was surrounded by it, you know, so I don't want to take too much. I mean, that's, I would say that's how I was raised, but it's, it's you show your true character in the worst of circumstances. And I had the best of circumstances, to be honest. Everything went perfectly. I thought, you know, three weeks before, I thought I'm in trouble here, but everything went as well as it could have. So it was easy for me, um, you know, to show my best sportsmanship mm. uh, characteristics. But I, it's, it's also interesting if, if I'm sure you would have read um, Open from Andre Agassi. That's a book that was from a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I thought that was a fascinating book in terms of his awareness of his own butterflies and his being, like he said, his quote was something along the lines of he thought he was, when he won, everyone started treating him completely differently overnight and it was almost like he was let in on a dirty little secret that winning changes nothing. And that was really my experience. My life didn't change. I probably, uh, you know, I got a bunch of speaking opportunities that I wouldn't have had. I have, I'm invited to speak on your podcast today. You, you interviewed me for the original champion's mind, you know, which is a, a credibility you have earned or not because everything went perfectly you know, 14, 16 years ago or whatever, whatever it was now. Well, you also inspired John Mont Montgomery who wrote a, 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 a gold medal reflection in the book too. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, how about that? How about that? You know, back to back gold medalist in, in, for Canada. In, yeah. In skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. There was, you know, and Jeff was a world champion and before him, the guy who built, uh, my sleds, Ryan Davenport, was a two-time world champion and still has, you know, like there's such a tradition just here in Calgary. And Ryan Davenport built my sled. And, you know, by the time the Dukers brothers from Latvia and Trechikov and those guys had taken the sport to such a, a huge level athletically, they started to, the circuit went back to Laplan you know, where the 92 Olympics were in France. 
and beat Ryan Davenport's track record, but they beat it by a few tenths. And athletically, Ryan was terrible, which meant that in terms of the velocity that Ryan generated was still blows them out of the water. He's still by far the, the master technician uh, of this, the, the, the savant of, of the sport and just a regular guy that you would pass him on the street and think nothing of it. And yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's cool tradition. It's amazing that you see that in other disciplines like Jim Terrell, who's the founder of quick blade paddles. Um, right. He, he, he would show up to, you know, world cup and world championship. And he was in that, the kneeling discipline in, in canoe with this, you know, differently shaped or cambered paddle. And people would say, could you build me one of those? And eventually got to the point, like you were saying with your teammates of thinking, okay, well, I've got to where I'm going to get to here. So yeah, sure. I can, I can help um, do this. And then they started giving their feedback, which again, improved the designs. And then obviously with the explosion of, of sup stand up paddle boarding, then he kind of pivoted and um, yeah, but some of those, different designs you know like the v drive now and, and then brought in guys like dave kalama you know world-class surfers and paddlers to to further improve things but yeah in terms of that technician you said that and i Im- immediately thought yeah jimmy terrell from from quick blade paddles the same way yeah and i have a quick blade paddle because i'm a bit of a sup not i'll never win a race or anything but i'm me too so into it yeah <laughs> which one which one do you have um, it is a three dimensional one, but I don't, I don't like, I could probably tell you it's 93 square inch. It's, yeah. it's probably five years old now. So okay. I don't know. Yeah. What. One of the midsize ones, not, not the giant ones. The first Kalama signature was yeah. like 106 or 110 or something. It was just a brute, but, um, he's a bit, you know, he's six three, two twenty five, two thirty. 230. So it's a big yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing though. You're right. Sometimes the technical innovations, um, again, like you said, you know, your man kind of recognized his uh, his athletic ceiling and then thought, okay, well, how are we going to do this? This is, you know, it breeds technical innovation. So that's another part of the mindset component, right? Around strategy yeah. and just lever points and how can Absolutely. you get more out of this? Well, I like I've struggled to find something to direct my physical energy to uh, after I cease to do skeleton and that's largely paddleboarding and I and I wanted to I found myself you know a couple of winters went by and I thought to myself I'm just waiting for summer that's a horrible way to to spend your winters so I thought okay I'm gonna get into cross-country skiing because it's sort of like the same core and I'll and uh you know some of the paddlers do cross-country skiing uh in the winter so I look at I look at a cross-country ski or a speed skate, very similar kind of an idea. And I think to myself, that factory made width of a ski and camber and length, there's no way that that, like how do you, how do you know that that's the best one for me at 210? You know, do I have to, it, can I only make it longer or stiffen the camber or the whatever you call it the that distributes your weight over a longer period that that might cover everything what if the blade was narrower or fat do i need it fatter to you know distribute my body weight over it it probably relates to my style it probably relates to you know if it's skating on your your 
on the edge more? Does it make sense to have a longer and skinnier ski? I don't know if anyone, I would say 90 some odd percent of athletes would say, coach, you tell me what I should do. And that's the end of it. And that was the opposite environment that we had in skeleton. And part of that is because in skeleton, we can, we start, you know, what is a runner by the rules, a runner is a shaped bar. In other words, it's cylindrical. It's not like a blade that has two grooves cut out of the back half of it. So how far the grooves are apart dictates how much of that spine in the middle is distributing your weight. Now, if those grooves are too far apart, then do the edges even touch? Or, you know, like if it's, if it's a centimeter apart, then those edges don't touch at all because it's, it's a curve. And then it's part two is, do the grooves go straight into the runner or are they very shallow so it can't sink into the ice if the ice is soft? All of these things you play around with. And then people invented, well, I'm going to have two grooves, but I'm going to put one of them because that's the definition of a runner and you have to do certain things to meet the rules. But I'm going to put one of the groove a little more on the side so that edge isn't even going to touch. So it's going to be a single groove runner. Let's see how that works. And I'll try... You know, it was my point is that is that it was incredibly innovative, and everyone figured out what was the fastest for them relative to them and relative to the track they were racing on and the ice temperature and everything else. So it was it was constant experimentation, and it was it it it, it forces you know, and and I would say it's the same experimentation in terms of what makes a more effective training program for me and what do I you know how do I best prepare for a race is it thinking about watching a stupid comedy movie to take my mind away from it the night before all of these things are individual to the person and requires a great deal of time and thought and ideally experimentation because whether something should be effective for you or is effective for you are two different things because we'll just you know the the guy saying after the fact that the guy is bouncing the marathon runner is bouncing well he's supposing the end because he know he knows the end so he says oh well it would have been better if he didn't if he didn't do this that's not the scientific method right the scientific method is two different options and seeing which one works and then trying to explain it after the fact yeah. And, and in other words, the experimentation is the key aspect to it. For sure. Speaking of after the fact, um, you mentioned in, in writing the book that you realized that there were a few of the topics that you hadn't even either come to or they hadn't fully developed in your mind during your competitive sporting career. Can you give us an example of that real quick? Well, the I think the basic mindset of it, of doing it because you loved it and wanted to do it and were interested in it and, and, and really focused on it wasn't something I did intentionally. It wasn't, you know, I looked at uh, my parents saying, get out of the house and we play, and I was lucky in my neighborhood where there were 10 kids all within a year uh, of the same age and we played for hours and didn't keep score. Okay, so why do we do it? Because it's fun in its own right in and of itself. Um, 
I didn't have an awareness of that as I did it. I look back on it and say, the only time we kept score was when uh, we were having, we only had one goalie, so we'd have three teams and play a, a king of the hill kind of a thing where if you lose, you go off. And if someone won five nothing, we'd, we'd change the teams. Why would you change the teams? Because we had an awareness that the closer it was, the more fun it was. And if you lost five nothing or won five nothing, that wasn't as fun. So I didn't do that on purpose, but I was never afraid in terms of that, that created a mindset in me that I was never afraid to go against someone who was better than me because I appreciated that that was part of the process. And that's how you get better. And that, you know, and years later I read, oh, that's what a growth, that's a definition of a growth mindset. And successful people typically have a growth mindset because they're not afraid of failure. That's that I read Carol Dweck's whole book and I go, oh, okay, growth mindset. People aren't afraid of looking bad and they don't avoid situations where they would look stupid because they lost. So they don't take it personally and they challenge themselves and ultimately they get better. And that's not something I ever did intentionally. And I can tell you as a coach also that it's not, it's not something that you can readily change in someone in their 20s or 30s. It's something, you know, it's a foundation you have or you don't. And that's part of the reason why I started a kids multi-sport program. It's because you can establish that. You know, you're doing this for fun. Okay, now you are three times more likely to represent your country in a sport because you won't have it trained out of you that the champ, you know, if you, if you want to be an NHL player, you better be on the top team at age eight. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, you it's... quit at nine because there's a better nine-year-old <laughs> than you. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, well, I'd love that skeleton is just a visual for me. Maybe I get too caught up in metaphors, but jumping head first into things, you know, like like you said, with the growth mindset, I'm either going to, you know, kind of win or learn, but I'm going to have fun because, you know, this is what I love to do. So finding out what you love to do and keeping that first and foremost in your mind during that learning process, I think is important. I, I came across a, a video of yours on YouTube a while ago where you talked about, you know, is you sport broken? And so um, you've done a lot to help turn the tide, I think, in the last few years. And I think there's much more awareness of, of what you're talking about. And I think your book is going to be a big help and is, and, and is a big help on this topic. And so, again, everyone could benefit from reading it. So thanks so much for writing it. Well, I appreciate that. I, I it, It's a lovely thought to me to think that you would have some kind of influence in, in nudging parents, frankly, uh, in the right direction. But I wonder myself, uh, you know, when we started Dark Horse, which is about fun growth mindset uh, and physical literacy, and I got all these wonderful emails, but I don't know if I've changed anyone's mind or if I have just the people who already agreed with me reached out and said, oh, thanks. Finally, someone, you know, has started a program like that. I hope, I hope it has an influence. But that whole, and this is back to David Epstein's range, there's this, there are whole industries that now exist that are financially driven that require you to think that you don't have a chance unless you're doing X all year round. And that's a, you know, if the parents have a fear that the kid will be left behind if they don't do it, then I can't imagine it 
it turns around anytime soon. My youngest, I, I, I'm thankful that I can use my youngest son, who's 14, as an example where every kid on his team has played hockey in the offseason and we've never let him. And this year he made the top, you know, Calgary is divided. You know, you play community hockey until you're a bantam. And then you can try out for what we call quadrant hockey, meaning the city's divided into four and you have four teams and then you play, you know, cities and, and whatever. And now he's made the top team. He never once made the top team in community. And two years later, never having played hockey in the off season, he made the top team in a quadrant. And, uh, He's progressing because we haven't sacrificed the athletic side of it for the skill side of it, which is what you get by you, you, you specialize early. That really works in the, you know, for a, you know, for a, an eight-year-old hockey player, who's the best six-year-old hockey player? I'll use a, an even more extreme example. Who's the best six-year-old hockey player? It's the kid who started when they were two and competes against people who are just learning to skate. Well, that kid is off the charts compete, competing against the kid who's just learning how to skate. Uh, but there's no shortage of, you know, parents, coaches, grownups around to say, that kid's got real talent. You need to get him into this program and this program because, you know. And when my kid was eight, he said, see that kid over there? He's going to the NHL because he was dramatically better at age eight. And the same, I think they would have said the same thing the year before, maybe the year before that. But at age eight, they said that kid is the best in the province, maybe the best in Western Canada. And now that they're 14, he's very, very good. But two or three kids have passed him. And what motivates, you know, if it's getting a hat trick every single game is the motivation. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. Right? So... It did. I always just thought, oh, you're doing that kid such a disservice by rating his future potential solely on comparing that kid to other kids his age. And he is truly off the charts for other eight-year-olds. But now at 14, he's very, very good, but he's not off the charts anymore. And where does that go at 16? And, and it's, it's not fair to the kid, but this is the system where... I'm on my, you can tell I'm on my soapbox now. I love it. No, it's good. I mean, we had a tennis coach tell us that in a certain rich part of Southern California, that a lot of the parents think you can just fix any supposed deficiency or close any gap with money. Oh, they need an agility coach. Oh, well, he needs a personal trainer. Oh, he or she needs this or that. And he's like, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, and this is a former pro player at a very high level, that isn't you know, it, it's not a better racket. It's not all these individual skill or different physical element coaches. You know, yes, at a certain level, that can be somewhat beneficial. But even at that, you know, that elite college level, looking at going pro, there are other factors in play here that, that can't be fixed just by you, the rich parent, throwing money at stuff. Yeah. You know, it, when you say tennis, I think of that. There's a series... Uh, of documentaries on Netflix called The Untold Story. Are you familiar with those? Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn Jenner is is a super interesting one. And there was one that was two tennis players and they knew each other as kids and the one lived in the family with the others. And and it's, you'll know the names and I... and I is it Was it Marty Fish and, and Andy Roddick? Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. Did you see that one? 
Yeah, I did. Okay, so I'm watching that, and I think, and Marty Fish says, I just need to come out of my shell. And I, and I walked up to this guy and said, you know, and we've been friends and known each other for years, and, and he said something to him like, you're going down, buddy, or whatever, and he screamed at the referee or a line judge or something, and he just came out of his shell, and, and he won. And then that's the character he became. And, it's, and, he, and they talked about it. I'm curious to know your perspective on this too, Jim, if you happen to see that one. But he came out of his shell and suddenly he was successful. And all I thought was, in the two sentences ago, you just described what I would consider perhaps the most dominant, mentally tough competitor of any sport in the history of sports, which is Roger Federer, who, who doesn't <laughs> seem to react to pressure or tension at all. He just creates an environment in which other people crack under pressure. And, it, and it's like, you look at Roger Federer and, and he's like this and he's like this, and he doesn't see the parallel between you know, and, and I figure, oh, I need to yell at someone to, to get the best out of me. Well, maybe he need to shock the system. Sure. But that doesn't, you know, he implied that that's what you need to do to be successful. And there are a lot of people who would, you know, buy right into that philosophy. Except for the fact that in almost every sport, you can name some of the all-time greats who weren't like that at all. So at, at very least, I would say, it's a product of you. It's relative to you, not some after-the-fact explanation as to why that would work or why that makes more sense. It might work today. I have a, I have a friend, actually, who was a rower, Jason Dorland. He was a 1988 Olympian. And he has this fascinating book called Chariots and Horses about how he describes the transition he went as an athlete, describing finishing sixth in the final in 88 when they had won the world championships the year before and Canada had won the 84 gold and the 92 gold. In 88, they finished last and how he was humiliated by that years later. And, and that had to do with his belief about you hate your opponent. And if he could have, re he says, if I could have taken my oar and, and reached over and smashed my opponent over the head, I would have done that. That was the mindset. And he went on to coach athletes in rowing, high school level, and achieved this incredible performance at a high school level. And a number of those athletes went on to represent uh, Canada and the United States. <coughs> Excuse me. And his whole thing now is separate yourself from the outcome. When you make it about the outcome, you draw a line in the sand and say what's good enough. There's no such thing as good enough. It's just what you're capable of. And, and striving to reach for that. And I would say that that hits the nail on the head for me. And that happened to be a gold medal for me. But if it wasn't, the, the beauty of that is that if it was a bronze medal for me, or even a fourth would be a shitty place to finish, there's no other way of looking at it. But if it was my best performance, I could have happily walked away from that. And there are others uh, you see struggling with it years after they should have retired because they don't know what to do. And yeah. it has to do with that, that mindset. So well, sorry, Jim, I'm, I'm super long-winded here, but did you, did you catch that 
Well, one of the things you're saying, I think, is don't try to be a cheap imitation of someone else, but instead be a gold medal version of yourself. That's a and, fantastic. Yeah. Sorry, you you should write a book because that is fantastic. Well, now that I have Phil on board, <laughs> uh, we're going to write some more books, um, including right. uh, yeah, including Champions Mind 2.0. But my one of my favorite stories in there, besides yours, is. Uh, uh, Natalie Cook, and she talked about that. It's about living a gold medal life. And she said, you know, she was asked, what if you didn't win a gold medal, then what? You know, because her whole life was, I want to be an Olympian like you. She didn't know exactly what sport. And then she told everyone, she was willing to, you know, have the courage to tell everyone. And everyone said, you're ridiculous. It's not going to happen. She surrounded herself with the color gold. She, you know, painted her nails gold. Everything was gold. <laughs> she ends up winning a gold medal in uh, Sydney at the 2000 Games in beach volleyball. And then was asked afterward, you know, you did it. You, you accomplished what everyone thought was impossible in your life. But what if you hadn't won the gold medal? And she had the best response ever. She said, I would have painted whatever medal I got gold because it's not about the medal. It's about a gold medal life. So that's and, and I also like how you're going deep on these topics because it's so easy. You know, it's kind of cog cognitive laziness, you know, to kind of look at, well, this person yells a lot. So then and they're good. So then that will help me. And, you know, we really need to think about what is most helpful for me um, and and yeah. uh, and and picking maybe role models <laughs> that fit that, um, but still trying to be the best you you can be. Um, and, and there's uh, to me, there's no greater victory than that. Yeah. And, and I acknowledge that there are people who hate their opponent and that superficially that generates the energy and that works. I, I would think overwhelmingly, like I said earlier, that, that that would have negative repercussions beyond sport that, that wouldn't work for almost anybody. But you can't, I mean, I wish I could remember, I wish I'd written this down when I, when I heard it, but there was an an American NHL player who published a book pretty recently within the last two years. And I don't, and I'm Canadian, so I'm supposed to know all things mm. hockey, but I don't remember. And he was an NHL player. Uh, and he, he was like literally assaulted by his father to train and get better. And he, you know, he has nothing to do with his father. Now he hates his father, he doesn't like hockey, but he is a millionaire playing in the NHL. So it worked, but at what cost? Kind of like the Agassi well, thing of where his, his dad would shove a second place trophy in the trash and, um, you know, say first place loser, that kind of thing. And it's like, look at the, the wounds that he exposed there. Um, it's yeah. almost like uh, Sensei Crease, you know, kind of the the villain behind the curtain in Karate Kid, you know, <laughs> and it chokes him afterwards, Johnny, when he loses and um, snaps the second place trophy in half. I mean, that was basically what Agassi relates in the book. And obviously that did lasting damage that he's still trying to process decades <coughs> later. Well, and it's, sorry, Jim, I don't want to cut you off. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I wish I could remember this story, but super quick. Uh, I, I love, uh, I, I don't know if it's Paul Brown, but a famous American football coach was once asked after winning a championship, like, you know, like he was basically being told, like, you're an, uh, you know, an amazing coach. And he said, well, we won't know that for the next 30 years because it's what these guys do after the sport. You know, like, are they healthy? Are they happy with their careers? Did they have, you know, did they enjoy the ride? You know, it wasn't about the championship. It, that's a big part of it, but it's, it's what kind of people they're going to become. Yeah, it's that's that's such a beautiful way to put it. And I 
I've had this conversation with like a friend of mine whose kid still plays in the community. They, we were neighbors and, and now he's the president of the association. You have this conversation and it's like, yeah, the, the greatest measure of success for this community hockey association isn't how many kids ultimately played in the NHL or at the Olympics. It's who still loves hockey 40 years from now. And so it's a very difficult metric to achieve uh, how few kids quit next year because they tend to, you know, they, they have a very strong sense of how many quit kids quit at each level, and that's super relevant. But Phil, back to your point about Agassi and his dad, and Agassi obviously had a lot of talent and, and went through, but always said he hated tennis, right? That was the, that was the point, and. When you say that, and when I read his book, what, what keeps jumping out at me is the blessing I had where my father was in, you know, competed for Canada in judo. Um, always reinforced this message again and again and again that it really didn't matter. And what a, what a gift that was, what a benefit that was for me at that absolute peak of my career in between runs where everything is on the line and having not not implying that there was no pressure there or no nerves or anything but having a better sense probably than anyone around me that I would be fine no matter what and that was reinforced again and again and again um, throughout my childhood for I can remember coming back um, I'll probably choke up talking about this but when I got back from the uh, Salt Lake Olympics and I finished 10th and I was hugely disappointed with that. My dad surprised me at the airport. You know, and it, and it was same, you know, the, you can edit this part out uh, after the fact, uh, guys. But uh, <laughs> um just, just that he was there for me. And ultimately, he was super enthusiastic about my success. And that, but that was fun. You know, that wasn't how he... That wasn't, that had nothing to do with how he saw me as a person. Okay, someone else talk for a second. <laughs> no, Stay no. with it, man. I love this. Uh, this is this is really powerful, um, and and it and it really uh, brings home the point that that we're all making on an intellectual level, you know. And you're really bringing it home on an emotional level. And and what a great gift your dad gave you, and then a great gift you gave your dad too. Yeah, really and special. It's, and it's it's why I'm so vocal about this topic area because you know you you'll sacrifice your your mental health in some cases to chase the gold yeah. when you could you I, I was set up to be supported and happy and shared something that I love with my dad which was sports and that also relieved a lot of pressure for me at the most pressure-packed moments of my career and therefore made me more successful. So why would you do it any other way? Why, what is it about this crazy system that has pushed us in a different direction? 
Yeah, well, it's partly where, as you said, there's money involved. There's partly a keeping up with the Joneses element of it. Um, and it's partly almost become like a lazy mode of conversation you know you run into people that you haven't seen in a while oh so what what sports is your kid in right now and it's like well i didn't get that far in basketball but i did manage to play college you know in two sports um and i wasn't playing formally at all in basketball until i was like 15 so you know it's almost kind of like, like that and you see that in like uh hakeem olajuwon and obviously he got a little further <laughs> but he was a lot taller and a lot more skilled but yeah it's that um siakam. yeah it's, uh, siakam was on was on the path to become a, a pastor i think you know a preacher and yeah you know almost like a, a soccer junior, player yeah, yeah soccer player as well um so i think that there's a lot of roads lead to rome in terms of success but what is how do you ultimately define success and if it's you know if you're a kid whether they get affirmation and affection and recognition from you based on whether they make the traveling soccer team roster or not there's a bigger problem there than the soccer team selection yeah 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 so this has been great yeah this has been great and thank you for all the great work you're doing um with that program and just the amazing perspective that you bring. Um, yeah, this is just bit, just looking forward to to bringing you back for a part two and diving deeper into that side of it. But we, we really appreciate you you kind of pouring heart and soul into this and also the book. So maybe we can, um, we want to be respectful of your time and we know you're coming off a, off a night shift as well and need to get back to the family. But where can people, tell us where people can find the book, um, where they can learn more about you and start a conversation to, to dive deeper with you. Well, I've, uh, the, the easiest way is thetaoofsport.com, and there are links from there. But it's, it's, in essence, it's available on Amazon and Audible. And if, well, because it's on Audible, it's also on iTunes, the audiobook. Um, but just Google the title or go to thetaoofsport.com, and I have links there. So that's the simplest. If you can remember the title, you can, uh, you can see the link. Yeah, well, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for, for being so thoughtful and um, and just spending two hours of your day with us. <laughs> well, yeah, and now you mentioned part two, but I, I, I'm sure I won't have, uh, you know, as you may have experienced, I, I don't have trouble talking about something like that that I'm really passionate about. And it was, it's my pleasure. So, uh, and I sure appreciate you on your platforms mentioning my book i sure appreciate that very much yep we're going to keep doing it because it's such an important work so thanks stuff for joining us thanks for being a gold medal person uh and thanks for all the gems today i learned a lot uh and i know our listeners will too uh and i know phil geeked out on the uh paddle boarding oh yeah <laughs> so, yeah we can do it we can do a pop mention, just on that you're way too uh you're way too modest so i'm going to mention you did a hundred kilometers you did 60 miles in one day right that's insane yeah, well, that was that was on a beautiful flat lake in BC, and I've I did one last summer that was from you're, you're that's very kind of you. I appreciate that. But I did something that was more was quicker, but more horrible and painful. Oh. Uh, that was six hours. That was from you've heard of Banff in Alberta. It's a big uh, I love Banff. touristy yeah. town that we have near Calgary. Uh, and Canmore is about, what is it, like 25, 20, 20, let's say 20K 
downstream from Banff, and it's where the cross-country and biathlon events were at the 88 Olympics. We have, you know, cross-country World Cup races there still. And I paddleboarded upstream from Camor to Banff, which is, like, I think it was like 24K. And that was, you know, it, it's some of the fastest water was the last four or five K. And that was the first time in my, I don't know how many years I've been glycogen depleted. And that was one of the least, I wanted to say that I had done that at age 55, but that was one of the least pleasant paddles I've done. That, that 60 mile one was a beautiful environment. And half the time the wind's blowing you that way and it's, you're with your friends. And that one wasn't nearly as bad as the other one but it's phil we could do a separate podcast on just the paddle boarding so that's 100%. it percent yeah thanks for joining us if you enjoyed this episode please tell your friends about the champion conversations podcast and rate review and subscribe to the show on apple podcasts spotify or your platform of choice you can also follow jim on twitter at gold medal mind Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.